Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Rick? I'm doing great. Thanks, Sarah. Yourself? Not too bad. Been going a little cross-eyed. I have a lot of projects going on, but busy is good, right? Yeah, you said you had too many windows open on your computer. That sounds yeah. like that's a good way to go cross-eyed. I think I have too many windows open in my brain as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to get cross-wired with that. That's for yes, sure. Yes, it is. I think the multitasking thing is a little bit overemphasized. Uh, I think it's really important to focus on one task and get that one done effectively before you move on. But too many of us get caught up doing too many things and then you go back and you're like, what was I doing? I think maybe part of that is because you're a guy. Could be. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We might have I have to do the a mom study multitasking thing going on. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I know studies have shown that people really can't effectively multitask, but I feel like sometimes I do a good job. Yeah, I think that's just in our own head. Maybe. I'm sure it is. Anyway, we have another special episode today. Awesome. Awesome. We love special episodes. Yeah. So uh, this week was National HIV Testing Day. Great. I think it's a really important day. It is, even yeah. in 2022, right? It is. So we have another wonderful special guest with us today. Uh, would you like to introduce her? You know her better than I do. Sure, yeah. One of my colleagues, Dr. Sarah Bears. Uh, I actually have known Sarah for years when she was getting finished with fellowship. We actually met and she moved here to Omaha, Nebraska. So it's great to have her. I'll let her tell you what she's doing now because I think she's doing lots of things and lots of great work in uh, uh, HIV world as well as medical education and clinical trials and everything else. So welcome, Sarah. Glad to have you. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I am uh, one of the HIV um, providers uh, here at UNMC, uh, but I'm also in the um, overall ID division, also attend on the general ID service and uh, lead some of the courses in the medical school. So I get to do a mix of clinical work and education like a lot of other academic providers. That's awesome. Um, so with it being um, National HIV Testing Day week, I guess. It's, it's not the day, but um, <laughs> <laughs> so you do a lot of work with the HIV clinic. That's correct. Awesome. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what goes on there in your role? Yeah, sure. So um, we have a, um, we're the sort of clinic with the largest volume of patients with HIV in Nebraska and in the Omaha area, we see about um, 1,200 patients with HIV, and we also see patients um, at risk for HIV who are interested in HIV testing and prevention. Um, and we are a really diverse and um, multi-specialty or um, yeah, multi-specialty group with physicians, uh, APPs, 
nurses, pharmacists, uh, social workers. So it's a multidisciplinary team that uh, is really feels like a family at times, um, working hard to help our patients live longer, healthier lives. Um, how big of a problem is uh, HIV in our area? Yeah, so we're fortunate that we do not live in a high prevalence area. Um, but we have, we certainly have, again, we have about 1200 patients. So we have enough patients to keep us busy and to um, make sure that we are hard at work also preventing uh, cases out in the community as well. Do you know how many persons living with HIV live in Nebraska or maybe our region is outside of what you guys see? Outside of what we see, it's, I don't have the exact uh, numbers off the top of my head. That's okay. That's okay. I was just curious. So it's still is a significant problem, even if we're not hearing as much about it as we did, let's say in the eighties and nineties. Yeah, exactly. So I'm sure a part of your role is to um, not only treat those with the HIV, but also the public health aspect of it. Do you get really involved with any public health campaigns for HIV in the area? Um, so I would say that we, you know, the, I don't know that there are necessarily um, public health campaigns in this area, but we are very involved on a national level and that all trickles down to the local level. I would say that HIV definitely benefits from a lot of advocacy from groups Sort of nationally and internationally, um, and we're all involved in different levels. So, for example, one of the um, things that our, or one of the events that our clinic will be joining uh, in the upcoming month is the Pride Parade, um, and that's a real opportunity for advocacy and uh, spreading the word about uh, the importance of HIV testing and prevention efforts and um, just awareness in the community generally. So, we all take part in different advocacy in any form that that can take. Awesome. So, so um, with this week being HIV testing day, the week of HIV testing day, I think it was earlier this week, but uh, um, I believe your clinic is opening up for some walk-in testing uh, coming up uh, tomorrow and Friday. Why is it important that uh, individuals uh, get tested for HIV? What's, what difference does it make, et cetera? Yeah, so that's a great question, and I, the it's the reason it's so important to get tested is really multifold. So the first is really for the patient benefit. Um, the earlier we can detect HIV, um, we know that we have very effective treatments that, when started earlier in the course of uh, the disease, can impact the long-term care. And so the earlier we start treatment, the less likely a patient is to ever develop any symptoms or even complications from the virus. And so that's one of the key reasons that testing is important. Um, the other big reason is for the public health um, reason, the risk of transmitting to others. So. Um, a large number of infections actually come from patients who don't know that they have HIV and are then at risk for transmitting. And so the more we can get patients um, tested so that they are then aware of their diagnosis and then can take precautions to avoid transmitting to others is important. And the most important, or what we've learned is the most effective way at uh, 
preventing transmission to others is to actually treat a patient with HIV. So once a patient is on treatment and achieves virologic suppression, which now with modern therapy really happens within eight weeks of starting antiretrovirals, um, we can we can eliminate the risk of sexual transmission of the virus. So those are probably the two most important reasons that testing is so important. Yeah, there's a lot in there. And those my age or older remember when AZT was first uh, introduced. And then, you know, we were doing monotherapy for a while and then dual therapy and then protease inhibitors came out in the mid 90s, which unfortunately had all kinds of toxicities and whatnot. So I think, um, you know, you, you have a population, if they're a little bit older, has kind of lived through some of those trials and tribulations. So maybe thinking of getting diagnosed and being on therapy is a little scary. Um, uh, but the drugs, uh, dr drug therapy, I don't mean drugs, sorry, drug therapy available now is a lot different, uh, is, correct? I mean, you can take one pill once a day in, in a lot of cases. Yeah. So we're really fortunate now. Um, in fact, I think some of my fellows think that HIV care is really easy. You just give everybody one pill once a day and it's done, taken care of. Patients tolerate it well. You don't really have any toxicity that you have to watch out for. And um, and that's a real luxury. Um, we've over the last, really over the last um, 10 to 15 years, we've reached a point where therapy is really well tolerated and really effective. Um, and yeah, it's very different from what I learned in medical school where we were list, you know, learned all the toxicities, which are really significant. And you watched patients come in sick because the medicine made them sicker than the disease itself. So we um, we're at a really good point. And now we have, not only do we have one pill once a day, but um, as of very recently, we have long acting injectable therapy where patients com come in once every two months, um, get two injections and that will um, treat, fully treat their HIV until um, the next two months later when they come in for their next set of injections. So that's been the biggest advance in treatment in the last couple of years. Yeah, I remember sitting down as a fellow and uh, we'd get presented different uh, regimens that people had been on and then their genotype and you'd have to kind of step through and try to figure out what the next uh, treatment was, also taking into account, uh, you know, what toxicities they'd had from other things. It was, uh, it was crazy back then. It was, it was very difficult. One thing that you mentioned talking about the, one of the benefits of therapies, you talked about no transmission sexually when uh, you know people are uh, on treatment, so that's an important advance in the last uh, you know several years as well. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, in the last several years, we had data which demonstrated that once patients are on therapy and what we call undetectable, where they reach virologic suppression, where you can't actually de um, detect the virus on a very sensitive um, nucleic acid amplification test, that they are no longer at risk for transmitting sexually. Um, and so the as that data came out, we realized the importance of sharing that data, not only with our patients, but with all stakeholders, the community, other physicians um, to really decrease stigma more than anything. And so um, the, the term that we use for this is undetectable equals untransmittable or U equals U. Um, and it's something that we have a little pamphlet about in our clinic and we'll hand it to patients. And I remember the first 
the data really first uh, came out probably three or four years ago. And I remember the first time we, I started to share it with patients. I have some patients who have been in long-term committed relationships with their part, their partner who has, who doesn't have HIV for 20 years. And they've been so nervous about, you know, the possibility of infecting their partner. And so when we shared this news that as long as they um, continue to take their antiretrovirals and remain virologically suppressed, they can't, they will not transmit HIV to their partner. They break down in tears and we're just tears of real relief um, from that, from that fear and from that stigma. Did that seem weird to you? You know, for so long, we'd been telling people to be cautious and everything else. And a large part of your practice career up until then, you'd been doing that. Now, all of a sudden, you're like, oh, my gosh, I, I have a whole different story to tell people. Yeah, it did. Um, and, it, you know, I think we suspected it because yeah. we had some data from other, um, it, you know, the data was slow to come in. But the finally having real good quality data that demonstrated that was was a huge huge relief for us and really changing the narrative of how we approach um, HIV risk transmission counseling and really being able to say, you know, this is, this is exciting. If you take your medicine, you cannot, um, you are not at risk for transmitting to anyone. You know, people even fear sharing their kids picking up a toothbrush and maybe there being blood on it and them transmitting to other family members and things like that. And so even though the data is in the um, arena of sexual transmission, it, you know, that even helps relieve them from some of those concerns as well. So that That's said, awesome. we still, um, we still do have to remember that, you know, the one thing I always have to remind patients is that even those who don't have one single partner, um, that even though they can't transmit HIV, that they can still get other sexually transmitted infections. And so if they stop using condoms because they know they can't transmit HIV, they still have the risk of other sexually transmitted infections. Is it possible for them to acquire a resistant HIV virus as well? Um, so is that still something that you counsel people on as, uh, as well? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, we know that HIV um, antibody is not necessarily protective. We have not yet been able to develop an effective uh, vaccine, but we haven't seen um, any cases of super infection or, uh, you know, transmission with um resistant, new resistant strains. And we also now in the advent of effective pre-exposure prophylaxis, where we know that two antiretrovirals and actually um, even one antiretroviral can, if taken before exposure to HIV, can prevent the risk of um, transmission. Our patients who are virologically suppressed are also on antiretrovirals, which can um, prevent them from acquiring another virus. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so we've been talking kind of in the realm of sexual transmission so far. Um, do you have, is there a different transmission um, idea around those that may be occupationally exposed? So like healthcare workers, if they have an exposure event? Yeah, so, um, you know, the risk of exposure from a needle stick um, in some cases in, is higher than some forms of uh, sexual transmission, and we don't have data to support that um, somebody who's virologically suppressed is not at risk or isn't, it's not possible to um, transmit to somebody through a needle stick. That's also the case with injection drug use, um, but it's, it's probably significantly, it's, it is significantly lower and it, it may be zero. We just don't have that data yet. 
yeah, the original sense. data with that was, uh, you know, well less than 1% transmission risk. But yet we still offer healthcare providers if there's a, a significant risk a needle stick injury post-exposure prophylaxis. And what's the kind of the state of that currently? Yeah, so post-exposure prophylaxis is very effective, um, especially if given within 36 hours of the exposure. Um, and so we encourage all healthcare providers to call as soon as an exposure occurs. Um, but actually, what's really interesting is that the uh, idea of PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis actually came from post-exposure prophylaxis and how effective post-exposure prophylaxis is. So we know that uh, post-exposure prophylaxis is more effective the sooner after you give it after an exposure. And somebody had the brilliant idea of saying, well, what if we provide uh, antiretrovirals before the exposure, and sure enough, it's even more effective. Um, and so for post-exposure prophylaxis, we still use three antiretrovirals, and so we'll use two NRTIs plus an integrase inhibitor. Um, and again, you just give a, a four-week course of that, and that nearly eliminates um, the risk of transmission. And so we do offer that to any healthcare provider who has a, a, an exposure um, can you maybe uh, talk about the importance of getting tested if you do have an event? Sure. Yeah. So um, the you know any the it, anytime um, there's a true exposure, so a true needle stick, a puncture wound, um, there is a risk of transmission. And so again, it's it's very important to um, report that transmission. Uh, have get testing done on the source patient and uh, the you know yourself if you're exposed, and then to begin if if it was a true um, high risk if there was a real risk of exposure to initiate post exposure prophylaxis to really reduce the risk of acquiring HIV. Yeah, great discussion so far. Um... Uh, Sarah, thanks. And I remember, you know, thinking back to it, you know, the biggest risk was with large bore, large hollow bore needles that are, uh, you know, go deep as opposed to, you know, simple, you know, like a sub-Q injection, for example. So I think, you know, there's different gradients of that. And it's great to have you and your team on call uh, to help us with those being employee health. I certainly appreciate not having to uh, to go through, <laughs> through all of those things uh, here. So uh, thank you for that. Yeah, of course. We're always happy to help. So um, getting back to kind of HIV testing and testing day, what are the current recommendations for who should get an HIV test? Yeah, so both the CDC and the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommend a one-time, once-in-a-lifetime test for anyone between, and the ages vary slightly, but anyone from around the ages of 13 to 65 um, should get a once in a lifetime test with any encounter with the medical system. Um, and unfortunately, we are still underperforming in that area nationally, um, but especially in Nebraska. The last time I looked at that data, we were um, at the bottom, we we're one of the one of the states with the uh, lowest rates of testing, of universal testing, and so we can do a much better job in that arena. Um, we have a long way to improve there, and the real importance of that is that again, 
the many reasons to do universal testing. So HIV has, we used to target risk groups um, and then we learned that that really did, wasn't effective. So providers aren't good about asking about risks. Uh, patients understandably aren't always comfortable sharing what their risks might be with their providers. Um, and the demographics of who is at risk for HIV have really changed. It's not, um, you know, it's, it, there are many different risk factors. And so, so targeted testing is, is not nearly as effective as universal testing. Um, HIV also has a really long latency period. And so, you know, from the time of exposure to the time when someone may develop any symptoms can be years and years. And so that's a long time in which we could potentially intervene. And so that's another reason why we don't wait for a patient to present with symptoms or signs concerning for the virus before offering testing. Um, yeah, so everybody should get one-time tests. Are there some people that maybe you tell should be tested a little bit more frequently based on what their individual risk factors are? Absolutely, yes. So um, patients who, anyone who's at, um, who has uh, any risk factors that could place them at, um, any factors that could place them at higher risk for acquiring HIV should get tested more often. So um, particularly patients who have um, unprotected sex with more than one partner, um, we recommend getting tested at least once a year. Um, and if they have multiple partners and, um, you know, are, are not using condoms with sex, then we recommend testing every, up to every three months, as often as every three months. Is there any consideration for intravenous drug use or anything as well? Absolutely. So um, again, unprotected sex, intravenous drug use are, are the two most important um, risk factors, but anyone who exchanges sex for drugs or money, um, the, yeah, those are, those are really the, the most. Um, and then uh, men who um, participate in uh, receptive um, anal sex are, are at higher risk in particular, um, but also men who have sex with men who have more than one partner or participate in receptive um, anal sex are, are also at higher risk. So a lot of these things that you're, that you're talking about, high risk and everything else, uh, you know, are not always comfortable things to talk about. Did, did it take you a little while to kind of get comfortable asking people about things? And, and uh, how, if you have a trainee or somebody that, you know, you're trying to help figure out how do I approach these questions? Because not everybody's going to want to disclose this. Mm -hmm. um, what's your kind of a take on all that? Yeah, I've learned that the more comfortable you are as a provider, the more comfortable you can make the patient. Um, but even then, there are times when it's going to be uncomfortable. And it really, it, you know, it, it varies from situation to situation. So I, I often say, you know, that sexual history that you learn in medical school, where it's very, um, you know, you're taught to, to ask um, a whole number of different lists of different questions that that almost never happens in real life, because the the best way, the most natural way to have that conversation is to just take it off feed off the patient and ask those open-ended questions now a lot of times you don't have all the time in the world to ask those questions but i do find that open-ended questions are the best and so instead of the way we're taught in medical school to say now do you have sex with men women or both and do you you know is really to say tell me about your sex life um tell me about your partners tell me about um you know, what, what types of sex do you enjoy? Um, and those questions are really the ones that will help the patient become more comfortable. Also, I've also learned that um, 
really learning the terminology that our patients use so that you can start incorporating that language instead of, so instead of saying, do you have um, receptive anal intercourse and the patient will look at you like you have four heads. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if it's a man who has sex with men, I say, are you top, bottom or both? Are you versatile? You know, really trying to learn the language that our patients use and then incorporating that language into your, um, your clinical histories. Is HIV testing included in any of like the normal well visits, like your your yearly pap smear or um, visits like that? It certainly can be. So we encourage, I, one of my favorite things to do is when we're, uh, we have the internal medicine residents on our service and we go through sort of the HIV 101 lecture and I always encourage them to start, you know, when, so that we can reach that point where everyone who has an encounter with the medical system does have that one universal test to say, you know, today, along with your uh, cholesterol, I'm going to collect an HIV test and, and really use that opt out language so that you explain, you normalize it, you list it alongside other tests that the patient um, is expecting, um, and then they won't be as surprised by it or as concerned by it. What, something interesting that I find is that a lot of patients think they've had an HIV test in the past just because they, you know, and I didn't know this until I was in medical school, I suppose. I thought that if you give blood, it can be tested for anything. I didn't know that you had to request a specific test. And, you know, um, so a lot of patients said, well, they took my blood. They must have, I must have been tested for HIV at some point. Um, and so a lot of patients think they've been tested before and aren't at all surprised or, you know, they're very happy to, to, to be tested as long as it's offered. A question on testing also is, is, you know, there's been an explosion in home testing um, and, you know, you can do, I think you can do your own blood. I think you can do saliva, you know, cheek swabs. What is your sense on those? Are they accurate? Are they worthwhile? Is it better to go into a provider and get an actual blood test that's sent to a reputable lab? What's the sense on all those? Yeah. So a couple of things. Um, the one, the biggest, uh, message I would say is that we never uh, make a diagnosis of HIV with one test alone. So um, in order to diagnose somebody with HIV, you need both a screening test and a confirmatory test. Um, the screening tests are purposely very sensitive so that we don't miss cases of HIV, but that means that there will be false positives. And so um, you know, even regardless of whether it's a home test or a laboratory test, if the result is positive, it always needs to be followed up with a confirmatory test. And so that would be one important point. Um, the other thing is that I think there are many tests out there and they all have different um, risks, sort of pros and cons, I would say, but um, it's important to get tested. And so any test that you use is great and just recognize the, lim the potential limitations of the tests. So some of the tests that are available in the pharmacies that you can get over the counter, for example, the oral swab is very nice for patients who are nervous about having their um, blood drawn, who don't want a finger stick. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a good test. It's imperfect. It's an older generation test where it uses its antibody based and antibodies uh, don't form until a few weeks after exposure to HIV. And so um, I've seen, I've had patients or, you know, future patients um, mistakenly use it right after an exposure, um, thinking that that would detect their, the virus. But you know, even if they did acquire HIV um, from a certain exposure, it would take weeks for that um, 
the oral test to be positive. The uh, finger stick tests, some of those that are available now that are being that are available in the pharmacies or that we use um, in many healthcare settings are newer generation screening tests, which include both antibody and antigen. Um, the P24 antigen is a laboratory marker that appears before antibody forms. And so those shorten the window period of detection by a little bit, but there's still um, gonna be a couple weeks between the time of exposure and acquisition of HIV where even those tests may be falsely negative. Yeah, so I'm glad you touched on all that because I think that's a change for people that may have seen the old tests versus the new tests because people may be used to doing the initial HIV antibody test and then doing a Western blot. And now with the fourth generation test, we're doing antigen, which is the P24 antigen, which you used to be able to order on your own, but now it's part of the test and then an antibody. And then there's a differentiation assay that comes after that. Can you just kind of explain the steps of what you would do the same? I come to you and I maybe had a home test that was positive. You're going to order the one test first and then stuff will roll over. You might do a viral load and a T cell count or a CD4 count. What's all, what all those things are you that you're looking at? Yeah, sure. So um, the if you had a home test that was positive, I would uh, bring you in and repeat the test on a um, collect serum, and we send that for an HIV antigen antibody screening assay. And so what that does is just like you said, Rick, so it detects the P24 antigen, it detects HIV antibody and it detects HIV 1 antibody and it detects HIV 2 antibody. And our lab will actually list the components separately. It will report them each individually. And so if any of those three components is positive, you will have a, a positive test and that will reflex. If the antibody is positive, it will reflex to the differentiation assay, which is another antibody-based test. Um, and so if the antibody on the antigen antibody test is positive, that will reflex to the differentiation assay. And if those are both positive, then you have a confirmed diagnosis of HIV. If the reflex test is negative, we will still recommend the patient come back for a viral load because there's still the possibility of early or acute HIV. And so we need to do a viral load to confirm that. Um, if the antigen component of that antigen antibody test is positive, Actually, nothing gets done reflexively by the lab, but we it's important to call patients back to come in for a viral load because that may well be earlier acute HIV before antibody is formed. And so we need a viral load to confirm that. Um, the other possibility is that it's a false positive, but again, you need the viral load to confirm that. So it's actually fairly complicated and we get a lot of um, calls from providers across the state with help interpreting the tests. And we're always happy to help because it's a lot more complicated than it should be. Yeah, it definitely is complicated. And I, I agree. I think it's, uh, it's important to know. I, I think when people are ordering, hopefully most places are now getting the, um, you know, the new generation assay. So you're picking up that acute uh, HIV as well as the, you know, maybe longer term with the antibody. Yeah, the other important point is if, if we have a patient who we're seeing in clinic on service in the ER who has symptoms of acute HIV, which can look just like EBV mono um, or same sort of infectious mononucleosis, if they have symptoms, uh, at that point, what we always make sure our residents know is that 
the viral load is the test of choice because the patient may not have antigen or and certainly won't have antibody yet. And so if you suspect acute HIV, we need to send a viral load right off the bat. It's never our first screening test, just when screening for HIV in somebody who has no symptoms, but if they have symptoms of acute HIV, the viral load is the test of choice. What does that look like clinically, acute HIV? So um, patients can have headache, pharyngitis, rash, lymphadenopathy. Um, sometimes it can even present as an aseptic meningitis. So kind of a little mono-like, right? Like mono. If, you, if you think mono and mm -hmm. you have, you know, certainly if you have somebody that's got risk factors, you should think about this. Exactly. I've had a few patients who have come in to our clinic with new diagnoses of HIV where we'll look back through the chart and they were in the ER, their urgent care clinic for um, mono-like symptoms in the preceding years. And often providers will check for EBV. They'll even sometimes check for CMV. Sometimes they'll even check for HIV, but they'll send the antigen antibody instead of the viral load. And, and then their patient's told, well, you probably just have mono, just go home and get better. And it, it's a chance to intervene because in the setting of acute HIV, patients have very, very, very high viral loads and they're highly transmissible. And so if they're told that, you know, if they're not, if the HIV isn't detected, they can go on to transmit. So let's do a different scenario. So I'm donating blood and I get told from the Red Cross that I have HIV antibodies. So I come to see Dr. Bears. Um, can you give me any idea how long I might've had this? Is it, you know, what's the degree of my immune dysfunction and, and is that going to come back? Am I gonna be at risk for things? Yeah, so we can't tell you exactly how long you've had HIV um, from antibody testing. When once um, we have a confirmed diagnosis of HIV, we do what we call staging or complete workup to really assess um, how how severe, how advanced the disease is. Um, that includes a number of different studies, but most importantly would be the CD4 cell count, which HIV selectively um, targets and destroys CD4 cells. Um, and so the lower the CD4 cell count, the more likely it is that the HIV was acquired sort of years ago versus very recently. That's not universally true. Um, on average, your average adult has about 1,000 CD4 cell count. And in the setting of HIV, they decline by about 50 to 100 per year. Um, and so it takes many years to um, go from you know, a normal CD4 cell count to advanced HIV. Um, but so if a patient has a CD4 cell count of 200, it's likely that they have had HIV for many years, but it's, you know, again, uh, many different factors determine that. So the, the second most important test would be the viral load and it's how the viral load is the most significant predictor of HIV progression. So the higher the viral load, the more rapid the progression. So that CD4 would decline a lot faster versus the lower the viral load, the slower the decline. And so those things will help us get a sense for how long a patient may have had HIV, but it's always a guess. Does that viral load uh, level indicate any differences in treatment or is it just that one pill once a day for across the board? For the yeah, great part? question. So um, there are some antiretroviral regimens that um, have in clinical trial data have been shown to be 
less effective if um, in the setting of significant viremia, so viral loads over 200,000, um, 500,000 in some cases. Uh, but all of the currently recommended um, regimens for first-line therapy, um, well, so most of the currently recommended regimens for first-line therapy don't uh, depend on the viral load, with the exception of one, which is actually a two-drug regimen. Um, in those cases, we can't use that one if the viral load is, is very, very high uh, to begin with. So then what would be like a general timeline of somebody got like an at-home lab test and went in to see you, if they ended up being positive, how long would it take for them to actually start that treatment with all of that testing that you do? Yeah, so um, we actually now will often start treatment the same day. So once we have a confirmed diagnosis of HIV, um, we can start antiretroviral therapy in clinic even before we have the results of a patient's CD4 cell count, viral load, um, and other testing that has been, call it the rap rapid start. Um, and we have data to show that patients are more likely to achieve virologic suppression in our shorter time frame, and even uh, remain uh, on therapy and engaged in care um, with rapid start. And so that's that's something that we are doing um, fairly routinely at this point, as long as we can, again, as long as the HIV is confirmed diagnosis, and um, we can ensure that the patient has a means to uh, pay for the medication and to really may stay on the medication. Because once we start antiretroviral therapy, it's it's treatment for life um, until we get a cure. Um, take a minute and tell us about your awesome team that you have there at the specialty care clinic. What all can you guys do for uh, you know to help people? A lot of people have uh, difficulties with uh, um, just social uh, issues and life issues, and and they they need uh, lots of assistance. Yeah, so that's exactly right. The many patients who um, come in have HIV is just one of the many um, barriers that they may face to, you know, getting um, into care on therapy. And so we have a whole team of uh, experts in different areas to help us and really to help our patients. And so we have um, Again, we have providers, including advanced practice providers and physicians who I think are some of the smartest and kindest people uh, in the field of medicine and who really are knowledgeable and take thorough histories and get to know the patients really well so that they can then understand what their barriers to care might be. Uh, and then we work with our case managers who are really adept at um, identifying barriers to adherence, barriers to care in general, whether it be insurance or housing, um, you know, food assistance, um, whether or not patient may need um, support in terms of disclosing their status uh, to partners or loved ones, um, you know, many different forms of support that the patient may need. We have our a clinical pharmacist who is full-time in the clinic, who is, we always joke that our clinical pharmacist needs to a little GPS on him because he's probably the person who gets consulted more than anybody else in the clinic. Uh, we have our antiretrovirals, especially our older regimens, um, come with a lot of drug-drug interactions. Uh, patients often need multiple medications, not only for their HIV, but if they have 
other opportunistic infections at the same time as their um, diagnosis of HIV or if they have concomitant comorbid mental health diagnoses and need other medications that may interact with their antiretrovirals. So we consult Josh multiple times a day um, and he's incredibly knowledgeable and helpful. Um, we have uh, nurses and who do everything from um, really, so some of our nurses will uh, administer medications, administer um, in vaccines, but also do motivational interviewing and get to know our patients probably better than anybody else because they are here in clinic every single day and take all the patient calls. Who else do we have? I'm trying to think. We also have study coordinators. So we have, we're lucky to have a couple of a pretty robust um, clinical trial um, agenda in the clinic. And so multiple research studies to offer patients. And we have nurses who help with recruitment and um, data collection and just study management. Yeah, I'm sure Josh has gotten busy here lately and the rest of the world recently got introduced to ritonavir with uh, COVID treatment, right? I mean, yeah. I, I don't think anybody quite realized <laughs> what that was like until they start getting a uh, uh, the treatment for that. Mm -hmm. We were we we felt like we were finally could use our ritonavir knowledge for something other than <laughs> HIV. <laughs> good times, good yeah. times. Paxlovid for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. well, check your other meds. It's yep. it's not quite as easy as that. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, couple things you mentioned uh, a while back, you mentioned, you know, until we get a cure. And so they've been searching for an HIV vaccine, an effective vaccine, um, and looking for cure now since, you know, since the start of the, uh, the uh, actually when the, the virus was identified originally, right, way back in the, in the 80s. Um, where are things at now? Um, it's been an elusive target, but it seems like we're making some progress lately. Yeah, I think maybe we're finally about to make some more progress too. So I would say vaccine and cure are two very different um, strategies. And um, the vaccine has been unfortunately rife with failures, but there's some optimism that, you know, the silver lining to COVID and the mRNA technology and the COVID vaccines is now um, being pivoted to HIV vaccine trials. And we have our first phase one trials of HIV vaccines based on mRNA technology that are starting to enroll. And, and um, I'm optimistic, cautiously optimistic about those trials. Um, then cure has been elusive as well, but we actually have now three um, sterilizing cures where patients who um, have been cured of HIV, that's not a strategy that we are able to replicate on a wide scale basis, um, but we're really proof of concept and have been able to advance the field of cure significantly. So um, all three patients who have been cured up to this point have um, received, they've all had um, a hematologic malignancy. So um, most of them have leukemia and required a, a stem cell transplant. And the um, they've all been transplanted with a donor cells that were uh, homozygous for the uh, Delta CCR5 mutation where you get a defective CCR5 um, receptor, which is the 
key receptor for HIV to enter cells and cause infection. And so they've all been cured as a result of that, but it, it they're all um, stem cell transplants with really high degree of morbidity and mortality. Um, and again, finding uh, donors who are homozygous for that mutation is difficult. So again, not something that we can really replicate, but really incredible progress in the field. Are they looking at vaccines for prevention or are they looking at therapeutic vaccines as well? Vaccines are mostly being looked at for prevention. Um, in the fields of sort of long acting cure, they're now looking at broadly neutralizing antibodies and some other forms of, and even sort of longer acting therapy than just the every two month injection. So there's, there's a number of different um, uh, therapeutics in the pipeline that look like sort of at least perhaps some, some longer acting than what we have now. Great. So, I mean, it sounds like in the last 40 years, we now have a disease that we can diagnose, we can effectively manage, we can get people to live long and productive lives, safe lives with their partners, but we need to get more people tested and diagnosed. Yeah. Great summary. That's awesome. So my key takeaways are be aware because it's still out there and get tested regularly if you think you need it. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, and remember that, um, you know, that, that our patients um, can live long and healthy lives. I think that's the most important thing I tell my patients is don't be scared about getting tested because we have really effective therapy that we can offer you um, to the point where you can live a life um, that's, that's really high quality life. And it's not looking like Dallas Buyers Club, uh, uh, Matthew McConaughey. I mean, you, you, yeah. I mean, you're, you're well, you're, yeah. nobody has to know. It's not no obvious. Yeah. 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 And that's a real benefit of injectable therapy. Now, you know, some patients are still afraid of taking a pill every day because somebody might find their pills in their home or that might inadvertently disclose their status. But now you can only, not only will you feel well and look look well, um, but no one ever has to know that you have HIV because you can come to the clinic and just get injections every two months and not even have to have medications found by anybody. Yeah, absolutely. No reason to not get tested. Yeah. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come into the clinic uh, Thursday and Friday. We'll, we'll get people tested. What are the hours for that? Um... I can tell you in one second. Yeah, so um, Dr. Bears is looking up the time. So the, the specialty care clinic is uh, going to have walk-in testing on Thursday and Friday, as we mentioned. Some of it will get this dropped Thursday at some point in time. So give you at least a day and a half to get the word out that uh, anybody that's looking for testing can get reliable, safe, convenient, and confidential testing. That's right. And it, the hours are um, 1 to 4 p.m. on Thursday and Friday. So afternoon of both. So terrific. So please, if you know anybody that uh, needs a test or wants a test, please uh, have them come out. Thanks. All right. We greatly appreciate you joining us and going through all of HIV. It's like we did HIV 101 and then we got a little <laughs> bit more advanced as uh, at parts of it as well. But I, yeah. I, I think it was extremely 
uh, entertaining and uh, educational for everybody. I'm sure Sarah learned a bunch. I did. I learned so much. <laughs> well, good. I'm My glad. mind always goes to like the IP, like what kind of PPE are we going to wear today? <laughs> so yeah. it was, it was nice to learn a little beautiful bit thing about, about HIV is you don't have to wear anything. It's universal. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing special. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Right. Yeah. Thank you guys. Take care. Thanks. And for everybody out there listening, thanks for joining us on today's episode of Dirty Drinks. You can follow us on Twitter at dirty underscore drinks and join in the conversation. And we will catch you next time. Bye, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, Reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.